So we continue in our sermon series on the book of Romans, and we return to chapter 2, and this evening we'll be looking at verses 17 uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 29. So Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. Please stand. Romans 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, as we hear these words and as we hear them explained and as we hear them applied to us, we pray for your ministry, your ministry to transcend the things that would distract us, the ways in which we would defend ourselves, the ways in which we would cut off that, that message of truth that we desperately need to hear. And so we ask again for your sovereign mercy, that same sovereign mercy that saved us and opened our eyes once long ago, but open them again, and we would see ourselves and see what we're obligated to do and to become and to be for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, there was a man who was a professional football player, and he decided that he was going to, to raise uh, the perfect son, he was going to be the perfect football player. And so when his son was born at a very young age, he began to stretch his, his hamstrings even before the, the boy could crawl. Uh, he determined that this, this boy would, would eat no sugar, uh, no soda, nothing like that. Even as he was teething, he was given frozen liver and kidney. Obviously a man who hated his son. Um, by the age of three, he could throw with both of his hands. He could kick the ball with both of his hands. He was doing sit-ups. He was doing pull-ups, uh, lifting weights. Even before he was four, by the time he was four, he could run four miles. 
Um, when he was a teen, absolutely no junk food. If he went to a birthday party, he came with his own carob cates and carrot sticks. He was being trained to be the ultimate quarterback. And by the time he was in high school, his father had accomplished the goal. He was so good, he was called RoboQB. And he made the Touchdown Club's 1987 National High School Player of the Year. He won several other awards, went on to play for a few years at, at USC up the road. And in 1991, he was drafted in the NFL, drafted before Brent Favre, who is in, in the Hall of Fame. So obviously, as somebody of great talent, he was given every advantage when it came to diet, when it came to uh, strength conditioning, when it came to his athletic training and stretching, all these things, given every advantage he could possibly be given, except his father neglected one thing of who he was within. All this stuff was external. All of it was, was outward. It was about his body. It was about his health. Nothing to address his heart or his, or his attitude. And because of the intensity of this training of his father in high school, this young man, without his father's knowledge, began to get therapy and turned to marijuana. By his senior year, he was smoking marijuana every single day so he could just handle the anxiety and the stress, which when he got to college, it led to his drug addiction and being arrested, all these things. It did not go very well. And some of you know, I'm speaking of a young man who played high school football right up the road here in Orange County, Todd Marinovich. He was given every advantage, every advantage, but nothing was internalized. And because of that, it all came crumbling down. In our passage, Paul is very concerned about those who might make the boast of every advantage given to them, but it's not sinking in. It's not impacting their life. And you may feel like you're going to be safe this evening because he's talking to a Jewish audience and talking about circumcision and the law. But um, you can believe that if you want to, uh, but you are not safe. Uh, this is an OPC pulpit and I'm a gospel preacher, so uh, watch out. Uh, but we're going to look at this passage in only this way. I'm going to cut it in half, and there'll be a third point. Uh, verses 17 to 24, we'll call that the advantage of the law. The advantage of the law. And then verses 25 to 29, the advantage of circumcision. And then perhaps some of you can guess the third point, the advantage of baptism. The advantage of baptism. So the advantage of the law, that's the first half, verses 17 to 24. The advantage of circumcision, uh, verses 25 to 29, the advantage of baptism. Now advantage is the right word. Because when you look at the list of things he's describing here, he's showing basically what are the qualities and the fruit and the benefits of having the law of God. What was the advantage given to uh, Israel in receiving um, this, this law of God? Because an advantage is what this is. This is not satire. He's not mocking them in these things that he, he lists about calling himself a Jew and then boasting in God. And scripture tells us that. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what they're doing. And so to have this, this law is a tremendous advantage, and most of this list covers that. Look in verse 17, relying upon the law. Verse 18, you are instructed from the law. Verse 20, the law is the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. And therefore, it leads to these conclusions that are all benefits to know God's will, to prove what is excellent. 19, to be a guide to the, to the blind, a light to those in darkness. Or verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. These things are all true. With the law, that's what the Jew can do. They can be a help to a person who's without the law. They can be a guide, an instructor, and a teacher. 
and be light. Because it's the case, as Paul has been proving in the previous chapter, that the nations are blind, that they walk in darkness, that their minds are fooled uh, by their, their error. They are our children, and it's because they don't have the law of God. And so this is a great help to share the law and to show how through what God has revealed, you can know who God is, that you can know his truth, you can know what his will is, you can know how to live. So these are all true. These are all advantages. But what if, he says, what if, in verse 21, what if it's the case that you who teach others do not teach yourself? It's unthinkable to have all these things and not to abide by them, not to practice what you preach. That's exactly what he's saying. And so he picks three commands. He picks the eighth, the seventh, and the second commandment. Talks about stealing, eighth commandment, adultery, the seventh commandment, and idolatry in the second. He says, when, if this is the case, if you are preaching against these things, these sins that God says are wrong, if you oppose these things, and yet you do them, that completely discredits your claims. That completely cuts out your, your boasting. To boast in this, this gift and the privileges that it offers to you in the law, well, that's completely meaningless if you're not obeying it, if you're doing the very things that you say that you oppose, that you're against. And so it's not just a matter of case that the, he's talking about the Jews here not keeping what they have. It's worse than that. They're not keeping that in which they boast. So you have this puzzling contradiction, he says. On the one hand, we have the guardians of the law, his Jewish readers. On the other hand, you have the Gentiles. But he's saying these guardians of the law who do these things are no better than the Gentiles. And let me remind you of where he is in the case he's making. He started in chapter 1, verse 18. He'll take this all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, to show everyone has fallen in sin, both the Gentile and the Jew, all of us alike. And he made his case in chapter 1 where he said, the Gentiles do not give glory to God. Why? Because they deny God's revelation and creation. But what's the case he's making here in chapter 2? The Jews do not bring glory to God. Why? Because they're breaking God's revelation in the law. This is the country, this is the nation, this is the people that ought to uh, bring glory to the name of God. The name of God should be hallowed and glorified through this people. He says, but that's not what's happening, verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed by the Gentiles. And this is the damning, set, the damning thing he says. It's because of you. It's because of you. And it's one thing to say as he opened the chapter that you're dishonoring yourselves as hypocrites because you're doing the very things you shouldn't be doing. But now he says you're dishonoring God. So you're not being a light to the nations. You're not encouraging others to glorify God. Rather, you're encouraging them to dismiss his glory, to mock his name. So amidst all the things he could have listed, he decides he's going to, in verses 25 through 29, give a really striking example. Now he's going to kind of go deep with this and show exactly what he's talking about with regard to the advantage of circumcision. And of course, what he's reflecting upon um, is Genesis 17, where God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, this is the covenant I'm I'm making with you. You need to keep this, this covenant. But the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Genesis 17, 11, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And as a sign, circumcision is what identified 
uh, Israel as belonging to the Lord. If we could put it in a modern day example, uh, where I was raised in Western Nebraska, um, in the spring after calving season, you'd be invited to visit the local ranches or, or farms to join your friends and help them in branding. As these calves would come out, about around 100 pounds, with you still you could manage them, uh, you, would, you would brand their hide. And by the way, it hurts. <laughs> they, there's a story behind that. But anyway, uh, it's really hot, but it leaves this, this mark on, on the calf. That is a sign that that brand holds up in court. It has legal significance. It's not just something to look at. It has a real significance. And that's the way a sign is. A sign is meant to point beyond itself to something higher, to something deeper. And so circumcision is this way. It was meant to point to something greater, something deeper, something in the heart. It pointed to those who belong to the Lord. Not just externally, but internally. But somebody who belonged to the true and the living God. And belonged to him, not just outwardly, but in their heart. They were committed to him. And so naturally, those who do not belong to the Lord, those who do not obey, what would they be called? The uncircumcised. Some of you may remember the, the movie, What's Up, Doc? Probably very few of you. Um, Barbara Streisand's in that movie, but there's a, a character, Eunice, played by Madeline Kahn. At one point, she's being dragged out of the room. And what does she say? She says, get your hands off me, you uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> now you laugh. She's quoting the Bible. That's what David said to Goliath, right? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? It wasn't an ethnic slur. It was to say, this person's outside of the covenant, But here Paul is saying those who are uncircumcised are those who are disobedient to the covenant. And that's exactly the point of the sign, that if you disobeyed this covenant that God made with Israel through Abraham, you would be cut off from the people of God. You'd be cut off from from Israel. But he says that's kind of what's happened. In verse 23, he says those of you who are circumcised, because you're breaking the law, you've become like somebody who's uncircumcised. That obedience was meant to confirm the importance of this covenant sign. And so disobedience contradicts everything that circumcision points to. These are the people that are set apart by God, for God. That's what circumcision meant. But if you break this law so brazenly, you've become somebody who's uncircumcised. You're becoming somebody who should be cut off. And then he flips it. Look at what he does in verses 26 and 27. And yet you have people who are uncircumcised. And when they do good, when they obey the law, it's like they become somebody who is circumcised because they're doing what is right. This is exactly the point he made earlier in verse 14, as we saw last time. So here you have this incredible thing, Gentiles shaming the Jews. You have uncircumcised people keeping the law and the circumcised are breaking the law. Here you have this sign that showed this people in their privileged place before God who've been given every advantage, not just the law, but have been given this this worship who could worship at the the footstool of God, enjoy these sacrifices that could bring about the forgiveness of sins. They had prophets and priests and kings who were anointed by God, every promise given to them. And yet we have this disregard of the covenant and its duties that this privilege and advantage place demands. And it shows that circumcision has become a sign that they really are not part of God's people. Because you see, ultimately, the issue here is not 
circumcision physically. It's not that. It's the spiritual reality to which it points. And that's what he argues here. What is a true Jew? It's not somebody who's a a Jew outwardly. It's not about circumcision. It's inward. It's the circumcision of the heart. That that covenant sign was meant to point to to that inner spiritual reality of what is taking place, that person's commitment to God. It's what's taking place in the heart to show that it's not just a, a sign, it's a seal. My heart is sealed to him and he seals me with his spirit and shows me that I'm truly his. And so what you see throughout the Old Testament again and again, like in Deuteronomy 10, fear the Lord, walk in his ways, therefore circumcise your hearts. Jeremiah says the same thing in 4.4. It's all over the place where God is calling his people to, to take seriously what has happened to them physically, that it be true of them spiritually. That, that true believers, a person who keeps the law with their heart by the power of the Spirit in their heart. It's interesting in Philippians 3.3, Paul takes up this very language. He's kind of using it ironically against the Judaizers who are demanding circumcision of followers of Christ. He said, this is wrong. He says, it is we who are the circumcision. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now you're saying to yourself, well, so why does this have anything to do with us you know, as Christians? He was talking about his Jewish audience, talking about circumcision. This has all gone away. Well, I have a passage for you. It's in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Two very short verses, incredibly dense and packed with theology, but relevant to what we want to think upon this evening. I think this is the right way to think about this passage that we have here in Romans 2. So let me read it to you. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And here he's speaking to, to Christians. He says, in him, that's Christ, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the flesh, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is clearly here bringing together circumcision and baptism. And what he's assuming here is that this circumcision is pointing not to something done by men, but to to the work of of God's grace in the heart. This is something made without the hands of men. He says, we're not talking about that. But yet he calls it circumcision. This is not a visible work that a man can do. It's the invisible work that only God's spirit can do in the heart. And so when he refers here to this circumcision of Christ, he's talking about to be circumcised by Christ, not physically, but spiritually. That this is the work of God's grace in Christ. This is the work of the spirit of Christ. And so he uses these words that would conjure the idea of circumcision. When he says, putting off the body of the flesh, he's talking about sin. He's talking about the flesh. In other words, not cutting off a piece of flesh, that's circumcision, but the whole body of the fleshly nature. And what he's saying that in Christ, what we do is we put off the body of flesh and we put on the new life of Christ. That's why he says being raised with him in power. That's what he's talking about here. And so uh, he's saying that being circumcised by, by Christ is simply another way of talking about being baptized into Christ. They're talking about the same 
a sacramental signs, the same significance for both of them, that he's talking about how this baptism is like circumcision, and it points to our being joined to Christ and united to Christ in his work for us. And this is why we've we taught in, in our church, in our communion, many other Reformed Presbyterian churches, that baptism is a sign of the new covenant. And there's many ways in which we can think of it as uh, the fulfillment of, of circumcision. It's an outward invisible sign of what? Of an inward and invisible grace. It's meant to point to a spiritual reality. That being baptized into the name of Christ signifies that we truly belong to Christ. And therefore we love him and we obey him because we belong to him. Baptism signifies that we're united to Christ and all of his work. To his death and his resurrection. That's how Colossians 2 puts it, that we're buried with him in baptism. That means we've died with him. And it says that we are raised with him. It's the same language that Paul uses in Romans 6, where he says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. And if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so he's saying, you died with Christ. You were with Christ when he was on the cross. And that's why you have died to your sin, to a sin that can no longer condemn you and a sin that can no longer rule you. And he said, you were raised with Christ. When he was raised from the dead, it was like you were with him coming out of that tomb so that you also can walk in the newness of life because you've been made alive with him. And Paul is saying, that's what baptism pictures it points to that inward grace and that wonderful benefit of salvation that we have. And of course, what this means in this passage, in the context of this passage, when we think of baptism, it means you and I have been given every advantage, every grace, every blessing, every benefit, every help that is imaginable has been given to us and our baptism into the name of Jesus shows us that, that you and I are forgiven of all of our sins, that we're cleansed of that sin, that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we're raised with Christ, that we have the promise of eternal life. There's nothing that has been withheld from us because that baptism is not just a sign, it's meant to be a seal and to confirm to us that the gospel is true, that Christ is mine and that I am his, that I belong to him. Baptism is more than something we do physically. It's meant to point to what's true. That's why we, when we baptize, we say we baptize you into the name of Christ Jesus. Not just in the name. Into that name. And all that it means, all that it represents. And that's why we can say that baptism calls us to walk in obedience before God. In accordance with all the advantages that God has given to us. So, if Paul is speaking to his Jewish audience and he's basically telling them, you have no excuse, then how about you and me? What advantage do we lack? Do we serve a king who is moody and not good? Is there something inadequate about our high priest and what he has done for us in offering himself on the cross or interceding for us at the right hand of God? Or do we only have just a small brief list of promises of God that God says only these three things are true for you? Has he withheld from us the vast amount of our a knowledge of, of truth and what we're supposed to do? Has he said, I'm only going to give you just a little bit of my divine power for your Christian life? 
That's not the case. That we can say with the psalmist, my cup is full. His steadfast love is abounding. His mercy is, is abundant. There's no end to his goodness and his kindness that we begin advantage. Our baptism into Christ is a sign that we have so much, that we have so many reasons to obey him and to serve him and to die to sin and to walk in righteousness and to love him. That's why Romans 6 begins the way it does in the tone it takes when Paul says, well, should we just keep on sinning? And what's his answer? He says, are you kidding me? No, that's not actually in the text. He says, no. Are you kidding? He says, you've been baptized. What does, what does it mean to be baptized into Christ? What does it mean to, to die with him and to be buried with him and crucified with him and to be made alive with him and raised with him, to be seated with him in the heavenly places? What does that mean? It means that you belong to him. But baptism also is a seal that confirms to us God's promises. It confirms to, it, to us what God has done for us in his rich mercy. It shows us that only Christ can save us because he died. And Christ is dead for me. Christ is dead for you. Christ is raised for me. Christ is raised for you. That I'm a, I cannot pass through uh, the waters of this life without him. And I will never pass through the waters of death unless Christ saves me. But baptism also represents I put on Christ not just a few benefits. What does Galatians 3.27 say? It says, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That when you're baptized into Christ, it means you get all of Christ. That Christ comes clothed with all of his gospel, every blessing, every benefit. That's what baptism represents, this eternal union that can never be put off. It means that nobody can snatch me out of his hands. It means uh, nobody can come and tear me away from him. I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ that he will never remove his love from me. I'm his forever. But ultimately, what we would say is baptism pictures for us what Jesus Christ has done, not what you have done, not what I have done, but Christ has done. It's interesting that in his earthly ministry, we get these, these hints, these signals, and sometimes just flat out straight blatant comments that Jesus knew what lay before him. That Jesus looked ahead and he saw his impending suffering and he saw his death. And there are a few occasions when he summarized all of that with one word. What was that word? It was baptism. As he said to the, to the sons of Zebedee, he says, can you undergo the baptism that I must undergo? Or like he says in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. He saw what was ahead of him. He saw that trial. He saw that he would be flogged and beaten. He saw the cross and how he would carry that great burden of our curse and our misery and our condemnation. He saw that and he looked ahead and he saw it at his baptism. But we could also say he saw it as his circumcision. When Christ would be cut off, that's what Isaiah said, Isaiah 53, that he was cut off from the land of the living because he was stricken for the sin of his people. It's because of that terrible burden that he carried for us that he stood in the place to be cut off as a covenant breaker so that we would never be cut off. It's because he took upon himself all the obligations of keeping the covenant and then to answer for the penalty of those who could not keep the covenant. That's you, that's me. 
It's there at the cross that Christ took your sin. He took mine. And he buried it forever. That was his baptism. Baptism is a sign that we're united to him, that one. We're united to Christ who is forever united to us. We are bound to this one who bound himself to our nature and to the burden of our sin. And that's why baptism is not just a sign, it's a seal, and it confirms who we are, and it confirms whose we are. It confirms what we have. It confirms who we will be. But it also confirms how every advantage has been given to us, every single benefit granted to us that enables us to obey him, and not just to obey him, but to obey him and love him with all of our heart. And all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind, everything we have. And I say that, and it's important to stress this, for this reason. It's because you and I continue to struggle with sin. There is that residual sin. It lingers there. It tempts us. And it's dangerous. And you and I struggle with it every day. And we lose several of those struggles. And we're tempted because of that to to think perhaps that we're not united to Christ, that perhaps we're not truly baptized into his work. We have all these doubts that arise in our mind. But I would tell you this evening that a passage like this reminds us to think of our baptism and would tell us this, don't lose perspective. Don't lose faith. And don't lose sight of your baptism. No Christian wants to sin. We're not happy when we're sin. We don't want to live in sin. We don't want to stay there or remain there. But we always have to remember our baptism, that just as our sin cannot condemn us, our sin will not reign over us. It will not rule over us. It will not get the victory that Christ has set us free to love God and to desire to obey him truly and sincerely in our hearts. He's enabled us to to die to sin and to, to walk in righteousness because we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. It's our baptism. And so baptism tells us from the point of of God's perspective that sin is not the greatest power at work in your life. Christ is the greatest power at work in your life. You are united to a risen Savior. And it's his power, his resurrection power that lives in you and is at work in you, that your salvation has been accomplished by the almighty power of Christ. It is maintained by the power of the living Christ. It will be successful and seen to completion by the power of the living Christ. Because if you are united to Christ in his death, you are also united to Christ in his life. It's Christ who passed through the waters of baptism in his death for you. But Christ has also passed through the heavens and exaltation for you. Christ is seated at the right hand of God for you. Christ is going to return one day for you. So believe in Christ. Flee to Christ. Rest in Christ. Lean upon Christ. Because he's your treasure. He is your wisdom. He is your fullness. He is your life. He is your power. He is your true self. And he has done everything, absolutely everything necessary for your salvation. And everything Christ has done, he did for you. And he did for me.
How do we know that? Because we've been baptized into Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for how it takes us down deep into the heart of the living God and shows us why it is so important not to look to things external, but to the things of the heart and to see that everything that you've given to your church visible is meant to draw us into the church invisible. Everything that you've given to us that may appear only as external is meant to point to that which is internal. And we think especially of our baptism, Father. It's not the mere washing of water. It's the washing away of sin. It's that cleansing fountain of the blood of Christ so that you can look upon us in your Son with delight and accept us, even as you will one day into your very presence. How we thank you for these things, and we thank you that you've condescended to us in visible sacraments to show us physically and tangibly again and again of your love for us in your Son. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.